Oh, yeah. Thanks, Bob. Yep. I'm sure I can get those out there. Uh, got it. Got it. Uh, thank you guys for coming out tonight. Good to see you. And um, we are in a book that I think is really, really timely and very encouraging. And the first part of it is very doctrinal. And this is about as practical as a book as we can get. So uh, let's get right into it. And let's be encouraged. We looked uh, really at the first verse last week. And um, I think we more or less left off at the word chosen. And we were getting ready to go in according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. I'm going to stop there. I hate to stop because it just keeps getting better, doesn't it? Isn't that encouraging? This is just full of um, grand, glorious doctrine, but it applies to our lives, I think, in a tremendous way because if you remember, in, uh, the reason that Peter wrote this was the, at least the gist of the message I think that needs to be gotten is that the people who he's writing to, as he called them, the elect that were aliens that were scattered all over what is now modern Turkey, uh, go beyond the tribulations that you're in or that you're going to face and go all the way and look at the inheritance you have. And that's really what he wants everybody to focus on. Rather than looking at where you're at, look where not only where the Lord has put you in the position now, but pointing further on out and into uh, that uh, culmination as, as he talked about here, the inheritance that is not um, defiled or it's not going to fade away. It's reserved in heaven. It's imperishable. Uh, and we're protected by the power of God is the next verse he talks about in that verse 5 is where we cut off. Uh, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So the ultimate uh, salvation that, that is coming. So that's, that's where things are headed for. So we looked at the, the word chosen, and of course we've, down through the years we've studied that so much, but it is a precious doctrine. And you'll see that God is in control of salvation because right in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father... And then in verse 3, of course, where he talks about His mercy, which has caused us to be born again. I can't think of anything more up front than that. Causing us to be born again. And so that is uh, the doctrine that Peter shares in that relating to that. In verse 2, it's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The foreknowledge. Uh, the, we think of it as prognosis. That comes from the Greek. Prognosco to, to know beforehand, to know intimately, to really know us before we were ever born. He had a relationship with us, a predetermined relationship. And not only did he have that predetermined relationship as far as foreknowledge, 
but he also has a predetermined plan. And a lot of times when you get uh, predestination and foreknowledge, they can be together. Uh, at least there are in a couple times in Scripture. I believe in Acts chapter 2.23, uh, Peter, again, is the, uh, the messenger at that time as he's preaching on that day of Pentecost. And this is where he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and predetermined plan there is predestination. And the next word is foreknowledge. So the two words are closely related, but a predetermined plan is praharizo, or um, you can think of horizon, or you can think of something that of a line, or, or something has been predetermined, has already been put down, and um, it was done beforehand. And foreknowledge is in having that relationship. Well, that was... Speaking of Christ there, the triune God, the Father came up uh, with this. Uh, there was a predetermined plan. There was the foreknowledge of God. And, of course, it's talking about a person there, not an event. So, foreknowledge is not a word dealing with an event or something that will happen. It's dealing with a person, uh, a relationship. Uh, when you think of Romans chapter 8, again, you get those two words together. This That was speaking of Christ and in the great plan that God had uh, for the cross of Christ. And then in Romans, it speaks of us. And he uses these words again in verse uh, 29. For those whom He foreknew, there's a prognosco, He also predestined and that is that predetermined plan, predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. So the ones He foreknew or had that relationship with, that He predetermined. And what's what's the plan? Well, to be like Christ only. And He goes all the way to the calling, to the justification, the glorification. Those five key words there. So, uh, there is uh, the idea of relations with humankind before creation. You can go back to the Old Testament. You can see the same kind of thing there with Jeremiah, for instance. You probably remember um, as God had Jeremiah in mind long before he was even born. He says, before I formed you in the womb, before I formed you, before you were ever in the womb, I knew you. And that's that idea of having that relationship. That's the foreknowledge. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. So you can definitely see a predetermined plan there and a predetermined um, relationship. Uh, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples, from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. That's what Isaiah is saying. From the body of my mother, He named me. He knew him. He's the one that created him. He knows him. And so those are just uh, some instances there where God had selected out some people to be his. Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, somebody said, well, yeah, those were the prophets. And of course, Jesus, you know, the same way when we looked in Acts 2.23, then Romans, we see that's what he's done with all people. He selects out some people to be his. 
Go back to your first Peter and go up a, a chapter, first Peter two nine. Uh, but you are a what kind of a race? A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And the reason is it's so that we would proclaim his excellencies, that we would be praising him and as we come into his light. And then he says in verse ten, once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So God selects some people to be his people. In uh, Acts fifteen fourteen. church council chapter in Jerusalem. And the issue is about what about the Gentiles? Are they they supposed to be like the Jews and uh, are we supposed to do circumcision and are they supposed to follow the same laws? And, uh, and here is um, the answer here. James says, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. So out of the Gentiles, he's going to take some people and they were going to be his. Um, John 15, 15, uh, he's talking to the disciples and he said, you did not choose me, but what? I chose you. So there's some people that are chose there. And then you go to Luke four twenty five through thirty. Here again, he's selecting some people. Again, these are going to be some Gentile people that he uh, chose to deal with, and this really makes the Jews very mad as he mentions this. Luke four twenty five through thirty. <clears throat> and at this time, he's at the. Um, synagogue in Nazareth at his own hometown. But I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three uh, years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them. He didn't go to the Jewish widows, only went to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, that's not Jewish territory, to a woman who was a widow. Huh? And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. And Naaman, that's a nasty name anyway. The Syrians are nasty names. I mean, they're the the enemies. And he goes to the captain of the enemies and God cleanses his leprosy. That's not enough. He's just drawn from Old Testament history here. All the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. They got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which the city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Passing through their midst, he went his way. What were they trying to do to him? He talked about predestination and he talked about foreknowledge. He actually talked about election and going to a people that he had selected that they didn't approve of and they wanted to kill him. And so it is when you mention (laughs) these kind of doctrines to people. Uh, I do want to say that election is probably the most pride-crushing doctrine in Scripture. 
Secondly, it's the most God-exalting doctrine there is. Thirdly, it produces joy. Fourthly, it's the most privilege-granting doctrine that we can partake of. And it's the most holiness doctrine that there is. It promotes holiness and salvation. And it's the one, I think, that gives us the most strength and comfort of any doctrine because we see that God brings His people all the way through uh, no matter what situation. So he selects out some to be his. And uh, Peter mentions that right here in the first verse and the second verse and the third verse. Do you think Peter knew about that doctrine? <laughs> Probably much more than we can even imagine our own selves and what it, all it means. So he, he talks about the foreknowledge of God the Father And it's interesting, he brings the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is found right there in the second verse. God the Father, His foreknowledge. He goes to the next one, he starts talking about the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us. So it goes from the plan that God had in His foreknowledge and His predestination. It goes now to action. And here it is in time. And this is where the elect that are found in... That word is found in verse 1. The elect before the foundation of the world, now become saved. And it's dealing with the work of the Holy Spirit. We were milling around at one time in our lives, unredeemed, fallen creatures, and the Holy Spirit came and just set us apart. And He he sanctified us. The Holy Spirit just set us apart. He applied the work of redemption to us. And uh, because of that sanctifying work of of, um, the Spirit... Uh, we we bless God, don't we? Uh, so we see that triune God right there. Look in Titus chapter three, verse five. Been on Titus on Sunday mornings, and this is a definitely a great section to be into right here in this verse five. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we had done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and what? Renewing by the Holy Spirit. The washing of regeneration renewing by the Holy Spirit whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. The work of God there all dealing with eternal life and what He did for us. Uh, Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. My God did a work, didn't He? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Baptized into. In, yeah. Right into the body of Christ. A regenerating work. Uh, being baptized, placed into Him, immersed into Him, and the Spirit is the one who does that. Yeah. So, and that vernacular is is used today, and sometimes it's, I think, taken very wrongly, but. Everybody's a Christian has been placed into the body. Yeah, good, good question there. Okay, um, the First Thessalonians one four says, "Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction." So, Paul is relating to the Thessalonians how. 
um, he had brought the gospel to them and it was brought in power. The Holy Spirit comes and convicted them, changed them, uh, made them born again, made them new, uh, regenerated them. Uh, the power of the Holy Spirit along with the Word of God. And you notice in verse 4, it started with God's choice of us. And then in time, here comes the Word and here comes the Spirit. And guess what? We're new people. And Peter's relating the same thing as Paul did to the Thessalonians. Um, how about Second Thessalonians chapter 2? 2. 2.13 But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved, by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification, a setting apart, by the Spirit, and faith in the truth. So there again, the faith in the truth, there's the Spirit of God, it's the Word of God, the Spirit of God. They were chosen in the beginning, and here's what happens during time. These are just basic salvation, uh, I guess you could say, this is how it happened to us. Um, Ephesians 1 4, probably know that one very well. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. At this time, He doesn't mention the Holy Spirit here. He does talk about us being holy, but who, who makes the work of holiness in us and we're, that we're blameless? Um, well, later on we'll see that the, the Holy Spirit comes into play as you look at Him in verse 13. We heard the message, Holy Spirit of promise came. He was a pledge. But we see that the whole triune God is is working in our salvation. The Spirit does a lot of work, changes us drastically. So Peter relates that here: foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctifying work of the Spirit, and then here is the Son here to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. So now he gets the. Work of Christ involved, and the ultimate reason is what? What's well, that? We obey Him. That we 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 now can obey Him. We now have the desire to obey Him. Um, we were in Thess- Thessalonians just earlier. Um, go back there for more. First Thessalonians chapter one, starting at verse four. Knowing, brethren, beloved, by God, His choice of you. Okay, there's starting with the Father. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So there's the Holy Spirit and coming and regenerating. Um, he talks about, you know what kind of men we were when we came bringing this message. Verse 6, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Imitators of us and of the Lord Christ having received the Word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the Word of the Lord has sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you. And look at this. How you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. 
So they repented. They they um, changed their whole minds about God. Their lives changed about. They turned to uh, to God from idols, serve the living God. They were obedient, and they they showed their faith that they placed in Him as they they lived that out. And uh, of course, it's the work of. Of, of Christ that had been uh, done on the cross with His blood and the Holy Spirit working in them and uh, they were obeying Christ. When you think of Ephesians 2.10, you think of the work of Christ. Um, you know, we're saved by grace and uh, not not works, right? Yeah, he granted the repentance. Exactly. Um, in the in the Ephesians two ten, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we walk in them. So there's Christ also dealing. Uh, with obedience for good works. So it says in Ephesians 2.10 that we've been made masterpieces, His workmanship. We're masterpieces of Him. And so it it reflects upon who He is. Uh, We were ordained to do good works. So God predetermined that. And He predetermined that we'd be like Christ so that we would have a life of obedience so when the Spirit comes in us because of the work that Christ did and the Spirit does, now we can obey Jesus Christ. Um, we were created in Christ Jesus' works. Um, when you think of, like in Peter's, it talks about the blood that is sprinkled. That's kind of interesting there. Uh, you know, we, we know that Christ shed His blood on the cross and of course that pays for our sin. You think of the Old Testament, you think of Leviticus, and there was blood sprinkled on different people in um, two, maybe maybe three ways. I think there were two cases in the Levitical law, and you had a leper, for instance. And in a symbolic way, blood was sprinkled on him, and that was blood from a bird, and it was put on the leper. Um, you have another one where you have the blood of a ram that was sprinkled on Aaron and his sons. And that was a symbolic cleansing there, consecrating them, setting them apart into their ministry. There was another one, and it's found in Exodus, Exodus 24. And this is a sprinkling of blood. Exodus 24, you have uh, Moses... And you have the people involved. This time it's not the priests. It's not Aaron and his sons. It's not lepers. But it's it's the people. Pick it up at about verse 3. Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, that's pretty good. Good intention. That's a good thing. It's dealing with obedience. We need to be obedient. 
and again, we'll see this again as they say this. It's, this is a covenant that's going to be made. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. Sent young men of the sons of Israel. They offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood, put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the blood of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. In accordance with these words. And of course, they're going to be obedient to it as they promise. But it's uh, it's a covenant of obedience uh, with God. It's mediated through sacrifice, right? And so the the people are sprinkled on that. They're consecrated. Um, This covenant is obligating the parties here. There's a bond made between God and the people. And this is symbolizing their commitment uh, to obedience. So sprinkling this blood is is a really key factor in saying, okay, this is where there's going to be obedience. So you have a connection between obedience and the sprinkling of blood. Now Peter, being a Jew, knowing these kind of passages and these kind of customs that they did, I think sees a really good parallel here as far as the people of God. And then you have the people of God who are in covenant with Him as they're being sprinkled. Not only do you have a covenant of salvation... I think Peter is stressing the covenant of obedience that they've been brought into. Uh, they are covenanting. They are covenanting with him in obedience. Right. So the work of Christ not only satisfies God the Father on the cross as a perfect atonement. That's you know he's he's satisfied God right. There you have that atonement. But it goes beyond just that atonement because now what you have here is, a, I think, a, a real vital truth, a covenant of obedience that is sealed in the blood. Set apart by the Holy Spirit, apart to a life of obedience, and sealed in the blood of Christ. So we have to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. We've been brought into that covenant and obedience is inseparable from the sprinkling of the blood. And so there's part of the covenant of what Christ has done where true Christians will obey. Um, obviously, we, we have struggles and battles and we do disobey, but the only reason that we truly can still have obedience is because of uh, the work of the Spirit and, of course, what Christ did. So um, thank the Lord that His, um, His blood has everything to do not only saving us, but keeping us saved and being in this obedience covenant with Him. He provided it all, didn't he? Sprinkled blood. <laughs> right. <laughs> all right. Uh, ends that verse with grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. May grace and peace. Now, he hits on the word grace and peace. Of course, the peace is they already have the peace with God but that they have an ongoing peace with Him. 
and realizing the grace that that comes from God and salvation and on, and being able to live it out. Uh, so he, he he has brought in of who they are. They're the chosen. They're foreknown by God. They've been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. They are obedient because of the work of Christ and Spirit in them. They now have grace and they have peace and may that be multiplied to its fullest. I mean, what a way to start a letter to people who are having some really tough struggles at this time as they're spread out and there might be some persecution happening. Uh, the privileges are now poured out by Peter as he gets uh, started in verse 3. And uh, they just don't seem to quit. Um, it, uh, you know, there might be times when we don't feel like we have any friends of the world. <laughs> and we're not to make friendship of the world, right? But we are children of God. And I think Peter just really makes this very clear on that. You know, we can be troubled by the animosity of the world, or we can be afraid, or we can be ashamed. Um, but at the same time, the world may, may even reject us. You know, they, they will. But God never will. And, um, you know, we might even lose an earthly inheritance. But the fact of the matter is, is that this inheritance is absolutely secure. So um, let's look at the, the time we have remaining here of the glorious privileges that we have that are actually pointing to a key word here inheritance. Inheritance. And look at these privileges as we start off. I've got on my outline, I probably have one verse two there, foreknown. I've got that. We covered that already, right? Foreknown, verse two. Okay. Verse three, here's a second privilege. We're ble- uh, we are to bless God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God. And what Peter is, is doing here is. Not only is he saying that because of all that he's already stated, but there's almost an imperative here for all the people that he's writing to and us tonight right here. After you hear what we've just read just in two verses, which is just full. Blessed be the God and Father. And it's pointing not only what he's what we've already seen, but especially to what is coming. Why wouldn't you want to praise God? Remember what the Jews would start off with when they would do a blessing? Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God. You know, we know at the Lord's table we will say that sometimes because he said he would say a blessing. Well, their blessings would always start off that. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God. You know, Peter says, "Blessed be the God." He does something a little bit different here. And Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is like a doxology. It's a doxology of his own. Does that sound familiar there, Bob? It's like a... It, it could have been popular in the early church, this whole section here that we start with here in verse 3 and on down a little bit there. Um, but it's intended to just sweep the hearts of all the readers and just start proclaiming you know, and looking upward rather than looking at their circumstances and their situations. He wants to lift their souls. 
and of course some of them have really been down and, and he wants to take them upward, you know, a, a proper call, a doxology. Um, and it's about praising God. So what better place can you start to get people in the right mode of understanding who God is and what He's done and what He has for you than to start praising Him, right? Um, blessed means He's worthy of adoration. Blessed be Him. Look in Psalm 34. Boy, there's a lot of verses that you get into the the text of blessed be God, but I'll cover them all. But Psalm 34, one. Probably heard this many times. I will bless the Lord at all times. Right? At all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. It starts off with, I will bless the Lord at all times. Well, that's the way to be, isn't it? Um, Look in Psalm 103. 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His whole name. Hey, you could sing that, couldn't you? (laughs) Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. Pardons all your iniquities. Heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Bless the Lord, O my soul. That's where it starts. So he says, with this kind of God that has done this for us and look what He's got for us. He has saved us, but we're heading for that final salvation. That's where we're going. That's where Peter is pointing. When everything comes to fulfillment, Totally. Our privileges and inheritance will be realized. There's a writer, a guy by the name of Robert Layton, back in the 1850s. And, and sometimes, have you ever felt unworthy to give the one who is worthy praise? I mean, what can I say to him? He said it like this. All this is far below him and his mercies. Talking about Blessing Him, praising Him. What are what are our lame praises in comparison to His love? Nothing and less than nothing, but love will stammer rather than be dumb. End of quote. Don't you kind of like that? Even though our praise is going to fall short, it's going to be far short of what the kind of glory that we'd really like to give Him and praise. But love will stammer rather than just be dumb or be silent. At least we'll get something out, Right? One day we'll be able to praise Him in in, in the fullest. But I think the better we can understand our inheritance, as we point to that there in uh, verse 4, the better we can understand that, I think the better and the more anxious we'll be to praise Him as we understand that, uh, that inheritance. All these privileges has a source. Blessed be the... God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, And he could have started with your father, but it's primarily that he's the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saying that Christ is God. He's Lord and you remember that Jesus said, no one comes 
unto the Father, but by me. The Father. You go you get to the Father through the Son. John ten thirty. I and the Father are one. And uh, the privileges are coming from the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you're getting, you know, the, the fullest there of Christ in the sense that um, Linsky, a writer, said a concentrated confession. A con- you get concentrated in one phrase. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the theology that you could really get out of that? Uh, Lord means what? Sovereign, right? Um, Jesus means that He's incarnate. He came here in the flesh. And of course, you think of Christ, you think of the anointed uh, King, the Messiah, the, the divine um, Lord of the universe um, is ours. Look at this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter can say that. Can we say that? Yeah. Our. He's ours. He He's mine. I'm His, but He's mine. I, I belong to Him, but I think that's incredible. Uh, the Christ, the anointed King and Messiah is, is ours. He's not a distant deity, is He? He's a personal Lord and Savior and an anointed King. Um, 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, He that is joined to the Lord is one Spirit. Now, we don't become God. never become God. We never become deity. But we're joined with Christ. Of course, He lives in us. We live in Him. Um, but because of that, you know, it's... Boy, I mean... Yeah. Uh, that is unbelievable. Peter has, I think, great insight as he had been with Jesus Christ and walked with Him, but then afterwards he saw Him. Then he was filled with the Spirit of God. And uh, he's saying something here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing. And Jesus had uh, introduced His Father to the people in the Mind-blowing, wasn't it? Yeah. So this is really bringing that uh, relationship into, uh, into a real uh, beautiful thing. Yeah, without Christ, we wouldn't have God. Yeah, he, he shows us. Well, yeah, the, the relationship, the eternal intimacy that we have with, with Christ. Uh, totally intimate. Remember when Jesus says, come and sit with me on my throne as I sit on the Father's throne? Yeah. Turn to that. Revelation 3.21. That, that baffles me. I, <laughs> I know you know, uh, they belong on the throne, but wow, sitting on the throne with the triune God? I mean, 
he who overcomes. And who's the overcomer? Well, in First John, it says the one who believes. It's all believers. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. Hey, if you have an ear, <laughs> listen to that, right? I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's way beyond all I can even imagine. But you're talking a relationship with, with Christ. Um, and being absolutely where he's at, you know, we're one in spirit in him. But we have all the reasons to bless him, don't we? This is why Peter says, "Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ." Well, that's where you get into the next word, according to the mercy. <laughs> According to the the great mercy of God is our next privilege here. Uh, the word is Elias. Uh, it's something like having compassion and relief on somebody who is in a miserable condition. Somebody who is miserable, a pitiful condition. Um, of course, what were we? Well, we were lost in our sin. We were damned to hell. We were captive to sin. We were slaves to sin. That was our condition. I, I would say that's pretty miserable, isn't it? That's miserable. That's pitiful. Yeah, a wretched. And so this gives a, a reflection on that of our pitiable condition. And um, we need mercy. We we have to have mercy. We need someone to show compassion to us in that uh, terrible condition. Desperate, wretched, miserable. Miserable condition. Yeah. And the gospel is all about mercy. And the more, yeah, the more that you uh, delve into God's word, the more and seriously that I believe we see sensitivity to sin more than ever before. And it's like, yeah, we didn't know how miserable. And when we first came to Christ, we didn't know how miserable we were. Well, we knew we were sinners. And the more you see it, you know, you claim that word mercy. And I'm sure Peter really knew, was beginning to get a pretty good idea of what mercy was as he really had experienced that. And what kind of mercy is it that Peter uses here? What's, what's, what does he multiply that with? Great mercy. Or do you ask, does somebody have abundant or something like that? According to his great mercy. Yep, he knew about that. God gives us grace by forgiving our sin. Um, 
the mercy is where He relieves the consequence of our sin. I mean, that's a profound misery that we're that we are in a pitiful condition, right? A helpless condition. Um, Matthew seventeen fifteen is an instance where that word is used, and of course, mercy is used quite frequently. Seventeen fifteen. Matter of fact, this uh, is reported right after the transfiguration. They go down from the mountain, Peter, James, and John, and there's Jesus. When they came to the crowd, verse 14, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I would say that's a pretty miserable condition. (laughs) That's the condition. Grace is dealing with a change of position. It's going from guilt to forgiven. In this sense, in mercy, we're going from like the condition that we're in where there is a compassion that is put upon the sinner in that pitiful condition. Thomas Watson, boy, he has some really good quotes um, that are really precious. And he's a Puritan. He said, uh, It is God's mercy that sweetens all other attributes. Because you remember that God is a God of uh, righteousness, you know, justice, and uh, is a God that has to unleash His wrath at times. Uh, Watson went on to say this: God's holiness without mercy, and His justice without mercy, were terrible. With, with without mercy, His holiness would be something that would. I'm a man of unclean lips. Remember Isaiah, Isaiah 6. You know, how would you like to be left in that condition? He goes on to say, when the water was bitter and Israel could not drink, you remember that? Moses cast a tree into the waters and then they were made sweet. How bitter and dreadful were the other attributes of God did not mercy sweeten them? Yeah, the mercy. You see him practicing mercy all throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. Beautiful word. A little bit of a shade of a difference between mercy and grace. The two go together, don't they? But there's just a little bit of a difference. Grace is in the category of, let's say, guilt. Maybe this can help us. You can take two G words here. Grace, but you have guilt. Mercy is a term that you'd have a category of misery. There's two M's. Mercy, misery. So you have guilt and grace, and then you have misery and and mercy. Grace is for our guilt. We get our sins forgiven. Mercy is for our misery, the miserable condition. Thank you, Lord, for having mercy on the condition that I was in. Maybe that's a way to help to do that. Mercy has respect to a wretched, miserable condition. Grace has respect to a man's guilt which has caused that condition. So when God gives mercy, it's to change our condition. When He gives grace, it's to change our position. So one takes from guilt. We we were taken from our guilt to acquittal when God gave us grace. Uh, Mercy 
is dealing with our miserable condition that we're in. Or you could say um, um, mercy and misery. Okay, We're in a miserable condition. Mercy is, is given there. Uh, grace is dealing with guilt. And that's what's caused the, um, the condition that we're in. That miserable condition. So mercy is to change the condition. So what you were talking about? Mercy changes the condition. When God gives grace, He changes our position. So, uh, we go from misery to glory. So that's what's behind salvation. God looked at you and He saw compassion as as He applies the the mercy there. Um, Romans 9, which is also taken out of Exodus I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. He didn't have mercy on the Egyptians or Pharaoh as it's used in that one. Out of his compassion, he chose to be merciful to that people, to his people that he brings into his family. He grants us eternal salvation. Um, Mercy is is a real, real key word. Uh, Go to Micah. Way back in the Old Testament. Micah 7.18 Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity? Passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of His possession passes over their act. He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in unchanging love. Look at this. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. He has compassion on us. Uh, He's merciful to us. Out of that compassion, He's chosen to be merciful to me and grant me salvation. Psalm 103.17 So many verses dealing with this. We won't cover those. (laughs) It's a little little idea. A lot of times when you see loving kindness in the Old Testament, or at least my version has loving kindness, it does the same word as mercy. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. Don't we have a song that deals with that uh, everlasting? Does it deal with that? Or there's some other songs where it deals with His mercy or His loving kindness? And so often in the Psalms you see that. I look how that started that. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord on my soul. Oh, that's that Psalm, yeah. <laughs> you know, you think on these things, that views from the realities of God toward us and grows up that joy and that thankfulness and we just want to bless Him. I think you just said it there. You know, it's like yeah. it's like He gives us everything but He wants everything back. And he wants all of us. He, he wants <laughs> He wants to possess all of us and have us joyfully give it back. You know, it's like, you know, he owns 
the Father totally uh, has Christ, and He also wants us like that. He wants us to be totally there. Beautiful. That's what I'm learning. <laughs> yep. Uh, he wants to possess, possess everything. That's a great thing, isn't it? Um, well, you know, when you get in that perspective, the next time that things get difficult, yeah, where do we where do we go back? What do we do? Right? See, and I think I have a sense that because of ease and comfort, the way we we have it so well here, uh, that we we have more difficulty giving ourselves to it in that you know to that extent because we can always relax you know and we don't have that the persecution we don't have the, the you know the tribulation like Peter's talking to these people about you know. so <clears throat> it's a uh, Yeah, those, those times come, the times of affliction and suffering and all these things, but... Keep praising Him, right? Yeah, yeah, isn't that meant to, uh, you know, not not to feel happy, but know that we're happy in Him, we're joyful, because, you know, He gives us that living hope, as it says there. That's the next phrase, isn't it? <laughs> Each one of those phrases, have you noticed, is just just full of practical stuff. It's just it's doctrine with practicality. Yeah, with the capital B. Uh, one more psalm we'll finish here. In Psalm 108, verse 2, Awake, harp, and lyre, awake and dawn. Verse 3, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples, and I'll sing praises to you among the nations. So there again, there's the blessing, there's the praising. Why? Well, verse 4, For your loving kindness or your mercy is what? Great. And it's so great, as how, how can you compare it? Well, what's the next phrase? Above the heavens. <laughs> I don't know how far that is, but uh, that's like e- eternal mercy here. Uh, infinite, infinite mercy. It's it's great mercy. He says it's great here, and then Peter used that phrase, "great mercy," mercy that extends above the heavens. How however much that is, how far can you go? Wow, uh, my. And then you get to the next phrase. We'll, we'll stop here. Living hope and causing us to be born again. We ha- we have a living hope, <laughs> and there are people out there that have a lot of hope, but they don't have Christ, and their hopes die. No matter how far they take, where they want to go, uh, they have a dying hope if they don't have Christ. But ours is ever living. Anyway, I hope this is a little bit upbeat to us, and that uh, always puts us back into perspective. Um, very promising, isn't it? Boy, I mean, if if you're feeling kind of negative, you want, want some positive uh, input, just go right there to the first few verses and it'll uh, put us in the right way.
Boy. Thank you, Lord, right?